Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a community of people seeking to live our lives in the orienting center of God's love in the midst of our post-Christian world, learning to lead like Jesus, live on mission, and make disciples. In nature, gravity is the phenomenon that brings stuff together, objects as small as atoms and quarks, and as large as stars and galaxies. We believe the gravity of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. The Gravity Leadership Podcast is curated conversations on what it looks like to practically orient our lives and our leadership in the love of Christ, the gravity that holds everything together. All right. Hey, friends, uh, you found the Gravity Leadership Podcast once again. The music that you just listened to should have clued you in. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe. Maybe they were searching um, gravity leadership. Yep. And this came yeah. up. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> anyway, we're, uh, we're glad to be here with you. Uh, I'm Ben Sternke. I'm here with uh, my friend Matt Tebby. Hi, and um, uh, we've got uh, a guest with us today. We'll introduce him in just a moment. Uh, but we're in the middle of this series on power. Uh, we're doing on um, how we as Christians and as churches conceive of power, how we get it wrong, how we take uh, worldly notions and definitions of power, and we project those onto God, and, and how that just, it just gets us into all kinds of trouble. All kinds of uh, jiggery pokery. It does get <laughs> us into jiggery on a, pokery on a previous uh, episode. Um, so, uh, so yeah. So we want to we want to explore that. We during this series, we're doing a bunch of interviews. We're talking with different people about how power and our our conception of it um, 
enters into various aspects of the life of the church and the life of the Christian. And so, um, yeah, we want to we want to explore that and um, just the ways that we have we have projected God's power onto conceptions of His love. Well, God's love must be this because we know this about God's power, mm-hmm. and we're suggesting in this series that perhaps it needs to go the other direction. That maybe our definition of what true power really is needs to come from the image of God's love that we see revealed in Jesus Christ. Scandalous. Scandalous, I well, know. Well, and to help us do that, yes. we have our friend Mako Nagasawa. Hi, Mako. Hi. Good to have you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yep. We uh, got introduced to Mako Nagasawa online, where all good friendships now start. Yep. You know, Twitter, if, probably. If, if I was a single person, mm-hmm. I would be finding a mate online. I mean, it's how a lot of that happens nowadays. Well, and I think I find friends online too. Yeah, much more so than I find friends like at the bar or Aldi's or right. It's kind of yeah. weird to make friends at Aldi's. I don't know if you've tried it recently, right? Especially, <laughs> right. Yeah. especially on your podcast. <laughs> yeah, around. walking around with our headphones. <laughs> on. Yeah. Hey, would you be on our podcast? Yeah. I'm just trying to buy bananas, man. Leave me alone. <laughs> uh, no, we we met Mako online, and we have been really benefited from his writings and teachings. Mako, would you give us an introduction to who you are, what you spend your time doing, uh, et cetera? Sure. Um, I I uh, am a native Californian. I, I went to Stanford and uh, majored in public policy. Oh, wow. At first, I wanted to be uh, involved in educational policy. And so I, I think a lot of my interest in power started there. Hmm. Um I worked at Intel Corporation for six years and at the same time lived among Mexican immigrant families in East Palo Alto, California. And then uh, when I got married in 99, moved out here to Boston, um, my wife and I wanted to uh, start a Christian intentional community. Uh, A lot of her friends and contacts were in the black community. And so we uh, were able to buy a house in in 2000 and, and do that. In the meantime, I tried to do different things, uh, start a business around here, uh, did campus ministry for 13, 14 years. And now uh, I'm both a graduate student at Holy Cross Greek Orthodox Seminary and um, founded the New Humanity Institute, which is about Christian education and curriculum development. Wow. Well, and that's how I found you, Marco, is the New Humanity Institute. Um, but, you know, Ben and I, we talk about on this podcast a lot, we co-pastor together, mm-hmm. and we were seeking a way to lead our congregation in a, a time of corporate reflection and repentance during Lent, which is the season we're in liturgically now. And I, I came across this study that you have been writing with uh, Seng Wan, um, who is a friend of yours? A close friend, a yes. A close friend, yes. And it's called uh, A Long Repentance, Exploring Christian Mistakes About Race, Politics, and Justice in the United States, or um, How to Ruin a Family Holiday Gathering in Six Seconds. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, how to, how to start an argument really fast with people you only see twice a year. Yeah. No, and so this... Um, so I found this res- we found this resource, and we have been using it at our church. We lead a group through uh, the weekly readings. There's, um, uh, it goes on for, I don't know, 13 or 14 weeks. Mm-hmm. Weekly readings uh, that covers like race, politics, and other mistakes that Christians have made in America. Can you, can you um, maybe give us 
an idea, Mako, about how this came to be, how you and Sangwon decided to write this? What was the impetus for it? Great question. I think for for both of us, um, being a, a little nerdy on the theology side, we, we wanted to uh, uh, reframe and ex- re-explore issues that originally started as uh, theological questions, um, whether this is reflective of the the great tradition in the church, whether it was a deviation or a, a formal heresy or uh, something like that. I think the the ways that we had heard, observed political discourse happening today, it, you know, it was was sad uh, mm-hmm. because we either frame it as uh, a uh, a race issue, a um, a culture issue, a freedom of religion issue, uh, you know, the the and these kinds of things. And so, uh, we wanted to step inside, and you know, we wanted to step back inside uh, church history and ask, well, what if something had gone differently at a key moment? Yeah. What if Christians yeah. had been able to course correct much earlier? Uh, what would have happened? Yes. So that. That's our, uh, you know, maybe it's unusual or unique. I, I don't know, but um, that, that's what we wanted to make a little more digestible for the the common person, whether they be a Christian or not. Uh, you know, because we wanted to help non Christians also um, care about these issues and be able to persuade Christians to some degree yeah. uh, mm-hmm. about them too. Yeah, so help us understand then, if, if you start with these theological issues, and I'd love to hear what they were, maybe, um, like, concretely, like, what were the theological questions driving you? And then um, you really go into some history, some American history, and talk about that history. Why did you decide to not just deal with theology and write sort of a biblical argument or case? Why did you decide to go from those concrete problems back into the history? What was the reason for that? Well, uh, we felt like there there are manifestations today in our political discourse, in our discourse about race or justice, that have been impacted by uh, mistakes that Christians made in the past. So, as an example, uh, you know, I'll, I'll talk about slavery, the idea of race, and the idea of land acquisition, and mm-hmm. and talk about how that works out. So, s- slavery, I think. Almost everyone would say today that the transatlantic slave trade was a huge mistake. It was a mistake for Christians to get involved and, and so on, but rarely does it go any deeper than that. For example, the, if you look back before then, uh, you know, Christians had started to uh, emancipate people from slavery uh, almost from, from day one. And when Constantine became emperor, one of the first things he did two years after that, if you're being generous to him and saying, you know, maybe his conversion was genuine in 313 AD, he begins to um, say, it, if you kidnap women and children into slavery, it's the death penalty. Just very strong uh, statements. Yeah. And, and that means that the church had a vigorous critique of slavery. All yeah. the way, you know, like, and, and so it, slavery was abolished in Northwestern Europe, uh, the Kingdom of the Franks in the 500s, you know, eventually the Scandinavian mm-hmm. country, which is radical because of the Viking culture and the raids mm-hmm. of abduction of children. Just, but the 
the gospel helped abolish slavery in mm. Northern Europe um, before thir- or by uh, the 1300s. Mm. So, you know, it, w- it was... Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't a foregone conclusion, right? I think that's sometimes how we think about it, is like, oh, well, everybody right. thought this way in the 1600s. You know, the 1700s, exactly. 1800s, I mean, it lasted a It was a, a different time. time. They were backward thinkers. Yeah, everybody thought that way. It was a foregone conclusion. Of course it was going to happen. But you're saying, no, Christians have always had a theology that could have resisted it. And did. It, it, it wasn't did. just a yeah. potential thing, but it, it did. Now, you know, I'm not claiming that the church was perfect over its history, but sure. there, when we look at the text and then we look at actual Christians carrying it out and trying to live it out, uh, that was really, that's really important. So this is not just theoretical. And, and you're absolutely right. We misremember church history. And I, I think we do that because we try to protect the American founding fathers from, uh, you know, being, being betrayers of the Christian, the actual Christian tradition. Yes. You know, the, and the reality is, you know, I, I, I hopped on, uh, I, I think very few people are willing to acknowledge it. Uh, so, you know, I hopped on a conservative uh, blog website once that was defending the, you know, Thomas Jefferson and and others holding slaves. And they said they were just men of their time. And I said, no, you're wrong. Mm-hmm. They knew that uh, this was different. This was uh, different from the English Christian tradition, because in 1102, the London uh, Church Council abolished slavery, emancipated mm you know, 10% of the population is the estimate. Wow. And in 1772, the Somerset case came up in London where an African man stepped off the slave ship and won his freedom because that was the custom and law. Yes. And that just drove people in the colonies bonkers. If you want to read Gerald Horne's The Counter-Revolution of 1776, they were deathly afraid that the British Empire was, because of Christian influence, going to abolish slavery, which they did in a few decades. Yes. But they, they said, we want out. So that because we want to keep our slaves. So you're looking at history because you think that it actually gives us a picture and a window into some of these uh, foundational, fundamental mistakes that we have to name and face and own as a people in order to move past them and work for justice and healing in our world. Um, yes, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And so then, what is it? So Thomas Jefferson, not an idiot, smart dude. Right, really accomplished right. guy, sharp, right? Good, good looking. I mean, I, I'm not an expert on. <laughs> one, uh, one would assume. You know, he, but you know, he, you know. So, how does someone who, how does someone like Thomas Jefferson, Mako, come to justify something that culturally was held to be untoward at best and sinful at worst? What's at work there? Well, I think that there's. Uh, there's a little bit of an ends justifies the means type of uh, thinking going on. I mean, what's interesting is that in England, there there never was um, a biblical case for slavery. There was economic uh, arguments for it. Hmm. Basically, the ends justifies the means type of thinking. Uh, However, I mean, at the same time, there were were two theological mistakes that were happening – um, one was the curse of, of Ham, that, that type of thinking of, well, maybe Noah's son Ham was cursed and, and maybe that involved being black skinned and, uh, that, Hey, he's supposed to be enslaved or, or Canaan, 
Ham's son was going to be a servant. So maybe that means we can justify all the slavery because it's so God a type has of ordained religion. this. God has ordained right. This. There's a it's God ordained and it's retributive. Like we are actually carrying out the retributive justice of God upon people. Mm. So that's one. And then secondly, there was the old Puritan uh, motif of the chosen people. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, that migrated down. And and what I mean is that you know. Uh, Puritans and others read themselves into the story of Israel at the point of Deuteronomy. Hey, we're fleeing, uh, fleeing religious persecution. We're crossing a wide body of water. We're coming to an abundant land. Who are we? Well, we, we are uh, a new chosen people. We're going to make a covenant with God, and we're going to claim this land as our own, as if he's giving it to us. Mm. And we're going to wipe out the natives. Now, that <clears throat> uh, we can go into whether that, that was even a, a decent reading of Deuteronomy and Joshua and all, all the rest. It, it wasn't, but <laughs> thank there, you for going into it. <laughs> there's not even much question of can we actually do this? Can we read ourselves backward into the biblical story like that yeah. and and claim this chosen nation status? Yeah. And and that was operating as well. Yeah, yeah I have a, a a dear friend who's a believer, a pastor who I remember. Um, you know, when we say we use the phrase "my jaw dropped" and hit the floor, I mean it's obviously a turn of speech. Although if you said it to my ten-year-old, he'll he'll tell you you're lying. Your jaw is not dropping. Right. Like he's so literal, uh, my ten-year-old. <laughs> uh, but I was talking to my friend, it's not true. And, and I was mentioning how, like, how do we how do we deal with the indiscretions of saints, right? How do we deal with Jonathan Edwards, who is so esteemed and held in high regard in, in much of the Christian streams that we swim in, but then you know justified slavery and owned slaves and, and argued for it. And my friend, yep. I'll never forget, never forget, he said, he said, well, you know, uh, there's good evidence that God used the Puritans to bring judgment upon the native peoples. Oof. And I just remember th- hearing that and thinking, oh my goodness. Like, like, if you're going to go there, like, how do you not go everywhere that takes you? Mm-hmm. Right? Right. Right. Like, you know, that's a floodgate opening. Absolutely. And if we're going to read history like that, then, uh, you know, why not read it as, well, you know, all the hurricanes and climate change issues that are hitting the American South, is that a, a, a judgment Judgment. from God on, you know, that region of the country for their refusal to acknowledge climate change or, or even a few (laughs) centuries later, you know, a judgment on slavery. So, So, you know, I, I think it, it's just um, it, it's just too backward, and um, it's, yeah. it's a wrong picture of God, and it's a completely arbitrary way of reading history. Yeah, so, yeah. And so then you, you in, this, in this study, and in, some, in many of your writings, you talk about how, um, you know, Westerners actually invented a concept of race— that hitherto like hadn't been used, right? So there's, you know, and scripture talks about every tribe, tongue, and nation, and there's an understanding right. of ethnos and how people are different. But but something shifts with, um, you know, the, like Catholic doctrine discovery and other things that justifies the subjugation of people and the acquisition of land. Could you share just a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, so a lot of this was developed first by uh, Catholic observers and explorers and, and, and such, and it was kind of taken over by, by Protestants later. The, and 
we draw on uh, Willie James Jennings, uh, the Cath- uh, the Christian Imagination. Such a good book. Yes, so important because before that, I I think I thought that my that the uh, sensitivities about race or the ideas of race came from um, modernism and science and the you know Kant. If you if you Google Immanuel Kant racism, you just get this long list of mm, wow. uh, very disturbing entries. But actually, you know, there were uh, the the explorers before him and and before before them. There there was essentially the blood theory of race that emerged from Catholic Spain because uh, Christians were afraid that Jews were lying about their conversion, and so they they developed a uh, typology uh, based on appearance uh, and blood that uh, then made Jewishness into a race, and then they hmm. they carried that sensi- sensitivity into the New World huh. uh, or the Americas, and um, and and developed something like sixteen different names, right, for how much European, African, and Native American blood you had. I mean, it was fascinating they're obsessed with this so <clears throat> so they carried that back into uh european consciousness and literature philosophy uh it was it was some catholic missionaries who who said well you know let's group people into europeans or christians uh asians like the chinese they're aware of the great chinese civilizations and uh they, they're educated uh, I, I think the term is educated barbarians, right? So we can reason with them and respect their culture. Um, but Africans and Native Americans were kind of lower on the racial totem pole. Yeah. And so, so the, the argument that Jennings specifically makes is that it used to be that you would identify yourself as uh, related to a place. You know, we, we speak of Jesus of Nazareth or Paul of Tarsus or Augustine of Hippo. So people's names were tied to a place. Once you remove place uh, through movement or through colonialism, especially, then you, you know, you look for other patterns by which to identify people. The human mind is always looking for simplified patterns. And, sorting and people so, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Sorting people, ways to make generalizations about the world. So, you know, your your skin color becomes the dominant form of uh, you know, identification or the, the way that you would identify someone else. Yeah. And so that, and then the skin color gets, gets put into, gets folded into this desire to have power. Right. Right. One, right. one of the things that fascinated me, uh, Mako, is that like these, you know, Puritans and other people are fleeing persecutions from a, from a, a Europe that has done centuries of uh, like point, Zero five percent of the people own the land, and everybody else works and serves those you know dukes, earls, princes, uh, lords, and leaders. And then you come to America, and there's basically this uh, untapped free land that, yep. as, as you talk to native persons, they don't consider ownership of land the same way Westerners do. And so, right. basically, there's this promise that everyone gets to be a king. Every, mm-hmm. Because land ownership was tied to royalty and ruling and, and leading in Europe, right. and so right. and so then you 
So then there's this allure of power. This is the way I'm telling the story. I want Mako to tell me how this is uh, off here. There's, <laughs> there's this allure of power. There's this allure of, of kingship, quote, in this democracy that then needs some kind of justification, some kind yep. of... We, we have to validate this desire for power we have. Yeah. And so yes. racism <laughs> and the Bible help us do that. Right. I mean, right. It might be too sim- simplistic, but well, it, it, but it's not. If it is, it's not far from the truth. And and you know, I I just want to make sure that our our readers understand that you know because we could see each other on screen here that when we talk about free land that you you put that in scare quotes, right? <laughs> right. Free land, scare yeah. quotes, quote unquote free land. Uh, and <clears throat> you know, a lot of that for us comes back to John Locke is the most fascinating character because John Locke. Um, lived after the time the English uh, Reformation happened. And, and so he saw the English crown seize monastery lands, Catholic monasteries on the grounds of those lands are not being productive. So John Locke turned that argument against Native Americans and said, you see, they're not being productive with their land. So effectively, he was one of the first white people to accuse non-white people of being, quote, lazy. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, and that becomes yeah. the justification for why uh, the first the English and then gen- generally white people could could take land from Native Americans. Now, in reality, they were productive and they were what we would call more into sustainability yeah. and yeah. and all these things. But uh, Locke de- both didn't see that and deliberately uh, ignored information that he did have because his library contained information that you know huh. was there about Native Americans uh, and, and and said they didn't have a state and so forth, which was strange because the English were making treaties with Native American tribal power. So how could you do that and also argue that they didn't have state? The I mean, there's just crazy things, but essentially John Locke. Uh, was a Protestant heretic, and he wow. he read Genesis one as, yeah, sure, God gave land to everybody, but really he wants to give it to the more productive people. So if you were more productive than the previous folks, then you could take their land. Mm-hmm. Now it's really it's really important to notice that uh, John Chrysostom, who's uh, patriarch of Constantinople during the the late fourth, early fifth century. And, and all the way up to Thomas Aquinas. I mean, they had these understandings of Genesis one that that said, no, God just gave the land to people in common and in general. And it yeah. was their actually their argument against slavery uh, that how could you take someone else's uh, the the fruitfulness and the harvest that they work from the land like that you're violating the the creation order. Wow. But all of a sudden, John Locke comes along. You know, and a lot of this is tied to Protestant arrogance that, hey, we're Protestant, we're better than everything that came before us. You know, the church history should really be read as Jesus, Paul, the Bible, and then Martin Luther, and who cares what yeah. happened in between. Right. So, <clears throat> the, you know, this, this idea uh, that you could, John Locke had that Genesis 1 is about productivity all of a sudden. So it's about a reward economy as opposed to a gift economy Ooh. from God. Ooh. And it's good. And yeah. that justifies basically everything. It it mm. justifies uh doing horrendous things to the actual people that used to live here. It it justifies doing horrendous things to the land 
itself. So mm -hmm. we could ecologically and environmentally devastate the land. Uh, and the argument is, but we're productive. Right, in the name of productivity. In the name of productivity. Mm -hmm. it, it's part of the reason why we believe that um, everything should be meritocratic, even though what you what you just said, land is is still kind of a mark of aristocracy. Mm -hmm. uh, so there, there are those old ideas. And um, even when we want to believe that the system is meritocratic, even when it's not, even when it's actually the U.S. government or the colonial, the colonies governments uh, wiping out Native Americans, mm -hmm. uh, either by explicit warfare or by, you know, Lord Amherst in uh, Massachusetts gave sleeping bags infested with smallpox. Right trickery, you know, those kinds of things, uh, tricking Native Americans. So the, 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 you know, this is part of the reason why we have a culture of overwork today. Uh, yes. Yes, there's a, right, because, there's a modern fetish with productivity. It becomes, yep. it becomes the, it becomes Lord, right? So we serve yes. productivity and we find ways to rationalize and justify how we serve that Lord. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, um, this is man. We could I could talk about this forever. I, yeah, I love I love this stuff. I, here's what I'm hearing in my head, uh, Mako, and I want I'd love it if you could bring it to present day because a lot of the long repentance deals with yep. present day things. So here's the here's the um, pushback I often hear. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. That happened and it was awful. What are we going to do about it? Uh, and, you know, I didn't I didn't infest any Native Americans with smallpox. Uh, I have never owned slaves. That's in the past. Slavery's outlawed. Um, smallpox has been cured with a vaccine. Uh, why don't we just get on with it? Because uh, that racist uh, abuse of power is in the past. Yeah. How, how, do you, how do you reckon with that argument or respond to that? Well, I would say it's not in the past at, at all. Uh, let's just take land as an example. So, you know, as, as, as folks trans... Uh, gosh, I mean, after World War II, there was the GI Bill, which right. essentially was made white families eligible to buy a suburban home because the way we can uh, constructed finance laws, we inter the government intervened in the market. The free market would would normally never have given so many uh, families a thirty year mortgage un unless it was government backed, hmm. right? And because it was just way too risky for, for banks to do that. So the government intervened. It wasn't small government. It was big government. It wasn't just meritocracy. It was uh, white, hidden, uh, a hidden welfare system for white people. Yes. And that enabled the suburbanization of America. Hmm. Once... Once that is in place, it's like it's like uh, you're saying in the 1940s, there was white affirmative action. Yes, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Right, it was a massive affirmative action. A prejudice for white, for white people, where they got access to government resources that other people of color did not get access to. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. So once that's in place, of dollars in a, in a yeah. what we would call technically a head start, right, on an uneven playing field. Right. It was already uneven. There were already racist zoning laws that, yeah. especially if you look at the history of Chicago and other yeah. major cities, because you know as as African Americans fled the South, they moved up north. They thought they would 
find more freedom and uh, what they instead found was racist zoning laws and, and things like that. So, uh, you know, in, in Boston, I live in a triple decker home that was uh, built in the 1920s for lower income Irish families. Great idea, because when when we went to the bank, uh, they said, oh, you, you'll live on one floor and you could get rental income from the other two floors. This makes home ownership way more affordable. But zoning laws changed so that out in the suburbs, it was single family uh you you can't do you know uh you can't rent out your house afford that yeah. exactly huh. yeah not only that so so uh uh the color of the book by richard rothstein the color of law details this in, in terms of a massive affirmative action for for white people around housing and once residential segregation is in place everything else can fall into place unequal schools right because right. schools are based on neighborhood property taxes and and so of course wealthy schools wealthy neighborhoods are going to have wealthy schools and uh poor neighborhoods are are not and and then you have the tax base eroding because people move out you have redistricting of school districts then you have different health outcomes different uh experiences of policing yeah you know, I, I mean, just every everything else it, it just falls into place. Mm. Not only that, but you have the the U.S. government um, in the fifties under Eisenhower creating uh, all the interstate highways, which made uh, lots of economic things happen, which was by itself fine. But you know, we don't remember these kinds of uh, interventions by big government. Instead, we we have this myth of meritocracy. We like to imagine that, oh, people just pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. We don't remember that Sears company in the late 1800s, early 1900s was made because the federal post office made it possible for Sears to be like the precursor to Amazon really? or, or that uh, pharmaceutical companies today get massive government funding from the NIH, right? At, at taxpayers' expense. We don't remember that cars made suburbanization possible because we were intervening in other countries to get their oil and gas. We think that everything is just meritocracy, that it's just the individual at play, whereas really it wasn't. It was the government acting in a warfare mode and a warfare mentality. And especially after World War II, they continued this government-corporate partnerships so that you know, the uh, corporations were actually supported by the government. Yes. And, yeah. and so a lot of, uh, you look at the hidden welfare system like that. Chris Ladd has a, is a journalist who often writes for Forbes magazine and has this really amazing uh, ability to pick this up. He, he says, think about how your, your health care comes, your health insurance comes through your employer, right? That was a, World War II, post-World War II, II invention. And, uh, and, and so what it enables is for largely white people to find the jobs that they want to, and then believe that all these things like healthcare come because they worked hard individually. <laughs> like, yeah. Or that they could buy a home in the suburbs because they worked hard. The, the reality is the playing field has always been uneven. Yes. We've always used looked to the government to uh, leverage things uh, for certain people mm. at the expense of other people, 
and and then we believe that we've earned it. Yeah. Okay. So, so you I, you're painting a really uh, lucid historical picture of what happens when we don't acknowledge and name the power at work in our culture, and we ascribe right. we ascribe uh, maybe structural or super personal power to my individual self. I'm actualizing myself by, I mean, you don't understand how many hour, lay hours I said it in college and how many right. resumes I sent out, right? All that can be true, but, but the totality of what you've been able to accomplish isn't contained in your individual effort, which yeah. is what you're, you're sort of, uh, you're critiquing and subverting that. That's right. So then what? Yeah. Yeah, do you have a thought about that? Yeah, well, I just think then part of the repentance, right? The, yeah, I was like, going to say, what do we do? Right. Like, what, what you know, uh, Mako, I can just feel really bad about that. I can feel really guilty about it, you yeah. know? Um, but it feels so historically uh, just huge. Yeah. Well, I think that part of it, and we've talked about this on previous episodes in this series, where um, power is very likely to be abused if it's not acknowledged as power. So that's part of what we're talking about. Like part part of it is yep. just acknowledging, I think, that I didn't I'm there's no self-made anybodies. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like there recently yeah. in the in the news, you know, they they talked about somebody becoming the first self-made billionaire. You know, and they're getting roasted on Twitter because they're like that a gen- wasn't that a Jenner? It was girl? Kylie Jenner. Kylie Jenner. The, surf, the first self-made billionaire and they're like self what are you talking self-made? about? Self-made? Yeah. Like that's not you know, anyway. She pulled herself up by her Louis Vuitton bootstraps. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, <laughs> right, exactly. Right? Yeah. So, so I think part of, part of it, like, part of it personally is like the repentance has to be like, I have to deal with whatever that brings up for me. I think a lot of times the reason that people obfuscate and they, they, they defend Dodge and they're like, well, and you stuff. know, like, well, yeah, that was a long time ago. What we about, had, let's what just about? move, let's just move on. Is they're experiencing shame. Right, they're experiencing shame from this, and they like they don't know what to do with it. And I think part of the repentance is just like feeling it and saying like, mm-hmm. okay, what? It, like, okay, yes, like I have been given advantages because of my skin color, because of my social location, and I have to just acknowledge that and say, yes, that's true. I think that's a that's like maybe ground zero for repentance. Mm. Yeah. What what yeah, else would absolutely. you? How how else would you guide us, Mako? Like how how do we? If I, you know, just for our listeners, like people who are listening to this and going like, oh my gosh, this is so true, but like, what do I do? Like, do you have anything else that you can help us with? Well, I think it does also, uh, does matter whether you have a, a, a Christian spirituality that's built around restorative justice or retributive justice. Mm. And that gets into, I, I know other, you know, this is a little further afield, but in restorative justice, the, the, it's not that you're supposed to stay stuck in guilt and shame if you're in a, you know, if you're on the offender side of the interactions, but mm-hmm. it's it's that we recognize, oh, and I'm being called upon to help restore the harm that's been done. Mm. I I think that, uh, you know, and that is part of my restoration. That that's what repentance meant um, in in the early church. It's it's a a an expression of restorative justice. I uh, think the the emphasis on retributive justice that comes f- from different places, but um, it makes it complicated, it, emotionally complicated, because I think 
people feel like, why are you bringing this up? You're making me feel guilty. I thought Jesus was supposed to take away uh, all the guilt, right? Yeah. So, so then you get into this weird loop with people of, uh, you shouldn't bring up injustice, you, you know, and if you want to talk about those kinds of things, then you should present it to me as an opportunity to be charitable. Mm. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I can just feel good about myself. Yeah. <clears throat> so, Oh, the, like the, the worst thing, thing, the worst thing you could do is make a privileged person feel guilty. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I think it's fascinating how you're connecting that with retributive justice, because of course it's the worst thing, because that's the end, right? For us, it's like, I can't be caught doing something bad because... I'll get like, punished. The end is punishment, <laughs> that's it. Rather than, right. and I'm thinking of the story of Zacchaeus, right? Jesus didn't go yep. to Zacchaeus out to make him feel bad. But like his right. repentance was displayed in the fact that he was like, I'm restoring what I've stolen from these people. Exactly. Yeah. He already felt bad. I mean, you're not a grown man in a dress and a tree if you're not feeling pretty awful about yourself. <laughs> right, right, right. That wasn't the goal. <laughs> yeah. No one no one makes space for you to see Jesus. Right. right? Like, you're right. already shamed as yeah. a, as a quote honorable person in your culture, and yeah. you're a grown man in a tree. Yeah. That's like uh right. that's like scarlet letter stuff there. Yeah. Um right. And and the reason why he gives back, you know, four times as much as uh, what people what what he's uh, stolen from other people is because that's what j- the Jewish uh, law and tradition talked about for theft in Exodus twenty two, hmm. two to five hmm. times what you stole from other people. So he's he's honoring the principle of restoration. Yeah, I, you know, so yes, that's, that that and that's part of the power. Yeah, there's so much to say about this, and I'm I'm curious. I mean, retribution and restoration, Mako. And I'm curious, like, the retribution uh, understanding of justice, if it's tied up in these historical developments we've been talking about. Like, if you can't just, if you can't extricate it from the racial, economic, uh, land sort of history you've just been describing. Yep. Absolutely. So, and and you could do that from different angles. Um, One is just kind of the the common sense even psychology will, will tell us that um you know if you if your cousin or your let's say your brother robs a store and gets caught you, you know you would probably say look uh no doubt there should be some kind of consequence but make it constructive make it educational for him have him come in and work for the store right like uh that's a restorative mode of of, of justice and yeah. the 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 because the closer you identify with the offender, the more you're you're still on her or his side. The more you say the offender, I don't relate to the offender at all. This uh, that person is even a, a different kind of human being. They're a bad ombre. Gonna, yeah, you're bad ombre. <laughs> you're and this is where race comes in. Race yeah. is a is really a typology of criminality. It's Ooh. saying that. I, I don't have to care about what happens to you after I accuse you of being criminal. And if that's proven in court, all the better. Just lock them up. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I, I don't have to care what happens to this person in prison. I mean, the, so, so uh, the more we distance ourselves from the offender, the more we utilize a retributive justice mentality where we supposedly are satisfied by the amount of suffering that the person, the, the offender undergoes. I don't, I don't actually think that's, that ever happens, but that that's supposedly what happens. And 
the uh, from a church history or a theology standpoint, that kind of mentality crept back into Martin Luther and John Calvin went because they they uh, were riding on a wave of interest in uh, old Latin jurisprudence that talked about merit and punishing demerits and rewarding merits and, and so on. And so they wove that into the theology. Uh, satisfaction of retributive justice became the, the yeah. governing motif. And so it, hmm. that was convenient for them because they were also involved in setting up states nation states, yep. uh, Luther in Germany, Calvin in Switzerland, Geneva rather, and Zwingli in Zurich. And, uh, you know, the magisterial Protestants were yes. involved in yes. setting up nation states. The early Christians were not. They were involved in tempering the the Roman Empire yeah. and uh, influencing it towards being more merciful and more humane. Huh. Uh, the, the sociology of the magisterial Protestants was Magisterial Protestants was different. They were setting up nation states, and the first question you have to answer is, "What's our legitimate? Re- what what gives us the legitimacy to punish people? Sometimes execute them." And wow. well, why don't we project that onto God? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, here's have you are you familiar with the program Black Mirror? It's a British uh, program that's basically like Twilight Zone in the modern day, and they take I- I'm not. Um, there's an episode of there's an episode of Black Mirror on Netflix called White Bear Recreational Park. I highly recommend it. And and what it does is it takes the idea of retributive justice and it puts the viewer in the place of deciding whether or not they enjoy watching retributive justice happen. Wow. And then it confronts you with your notion of what is just and in unjust and it and it it's a it's an amazing episode so white white bear recreational park on black mirror when i watched it i realized um, cuz you watch somebody suffer for something horrible they did but there's no part of my spirit that was rejoicing in that none mm. I, no no part of me was delighting or glorifying God or amening as this person suffers. And I and it, it was struck me like existentially, emotionally, like retributive justice uh, doesn't satisfy me the way that restorative justice does. Yep. Yeah, because what we really want to see is people make amends, to, especially to the, the, the folks or the, the person that they've harmed. To the extent that it's possible, yeah, right, yeah. and to yeah. to carry around grief, not just cr- not crushing guilt, but genuine grief, right? That it's it's yeah, sure. I I had everything to do with this, but now my growth is bound up in my ability to sympathize with and make amends for uh, the person I've harmed. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, in in lots of different cases, like sexual violence, it may not be possible or wise for uh, offender victim, you know, relations to continue. All let's take that for granted. But in many other cases, it, it may be possible. Uh, there was a, a woman uh, that I met out in San Francisco when I was doing some speaking about this. And she came up to me afterwards and says that her husband was killed in a car accident. Uh, I think when he was a 
just walking across the street. He was hit by a car. That car happened to be driven by a neighbor. So, and um, rather than uh, press for, you know, criminal charges or whatnot, what she, the widow asked for um, that, that the driver spend time once a week in a homeless ministry, because that's what her husband had been passionate about. Wow. You know, that's, that's an example of restorative justice. That's <laughs> certainly more, I think a little more humane, heartwarming, sa- satisfying, if we want to use satisfaction language, mm. but um, be- because it indicates something about the, the offender that something's changed. Yeah. And this, I mean, this, we, we could talk for hours on this, but I, I think this is where this comes back around to some of the stuff you were talking, like the reason you brought this up, I think, is that our theology of what God has done for us in the cross, like it matters a lot <laughs> if we think what was happening on the cross is that Jesus was being retributively punished or <clears throat> whether what God was doing in Christ was restoring us to himself, right? Exactly. Oh, Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's a big difference. Now, some people would say it was both. Some people want to have both those things. Yeah. Right? I, the retri- retribution unlocks the restoration. Mm. But that's a, probably a different podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, that would be a very... That, that, that's a worthwhile thing, and have me back later. But I would yeah, love yeah. to. Yeah, 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 and this is how I got actually got introduced to your writing, Mako, is your, your writing uh, reclaiming what I would say is a, a Eastern medicinal understanding of the atonement. Um, and holding right. that next to yeah. the juridical Western understanding of the atonement. That's been really, really helpful for me. So we will we will have you back on to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe just to close, love, you know, you mentioned this restorative justice. So for instance, uh, there's a lot of um, arguments, and I, a conservative um, uh, editorial writer just wrote an article I think it was David Brooks, where he agrees with Tanahishi Coates's argument for reparations. I don't mm. know if you saw this, right? Mm. Kind of a big deal. That's amazing. It's a big deal that David Brooks would agree with. Rep- but I think that's where most people go. Like, I just got to pay. I got to pay for something I didn't do, which feels like injustice, mm-hmm. right? And I think what you're describing is, um, I mean, whether or not reparations are just is another conversation, I think. But w- can you help us maybe with just a story or two of, and the one you just shared about the homeless ministry is good, but what does restorative justice look like for those of us who are benefiting from power that doesn't find its center in the kingdom of God? Like, how do we work for justice there? Such a great question. Well, I think there can be a range of different practical outcomes. Just a a brief word on the the term reparations. I mean, Ta-Nehisi Coates used that term because Richard Rothstein in The Color of Law used that term with regards to past residential segregation. For mm. So for Rothstein and for Coates, to my knowledge, what they mean by reparations is let's revisit. We know exactly which black families were turned away from the GI Bill and, uh, you, you know, basically uh, federal help to, to buy a house. We, could, we don't have to go that far back you know, into slavery and so on. And it's not simply about color, although, of course, color's involved, as in uh, race. But the the reality is that we could do something, and it would cost about, 
I don't know, $700 billion, which is the size of the, the bailout yeah. from the 2008-2009 financial crisis, uh, to do that. And there, there may be different ways to do it. Uh, and it, see, and it's not an issue of, um, uh, well, it, it's, it's an issue of the 14th Amendment and legality because mm-hmm. governments are not supposed to uh, play favorites, especially along racial lines. So it's, it's mm. a, it was a civil rights violation. It's a constitutional rights violation that wow. the government played favorites. And, you know, you could think of it as simply as why, why don't we give uh, those particular descendants of, of folks, or some are alive today still, uh, the ability to get a 0% loan from the Federal Reserve. I mean, commercial banks are able to do that. So why not individuals? Hey, and, and when we're, now that we're thinking that way, right, because another Protestant heresy is that usury is completely okay. John Calvin was the first major theologian in Deusurus to argue for that. Hmm. Uh, and, and now we have a predatory financial system because we, there's no way to, to, to limit the amount of debt uh, that people get into. Mm. And uh, th- that's, that's just a huge problem everywhere. Yeah. Student debt, yes. mortgage debt, yeah. uh, consumer debt. Yeah. So you're right. And, and that's something that on the blog, we, we still haven't touched. <laughs> um, we will, but yeah. that, that's for version two. The, so the, um, you know, so I, I just point that out to say for reparations for, uh, ta Coates and uh, Richard Rothstein means something very specific, and it's an actionable policy item. Uh, so I don't know what other people mean when they say reparations, uh, and, and those are worthwhile to consider, right? I mean, I'm Japanese-American. My dad and his family were interned during World War II, and they got reparations checks for it. It was a specific uh, huh. amount for a specific civil rights violation. Hmm. So... So, you know, in, in principle, I think, sure, we should talk about it because uh, there, there were lots of ways and uh, that, that, was, that was done. You know, 40 acres and a mule given to white families, not to black families. Yeah, um, yeah. The, all the way back to there, perhaps. But um, Yeah, and like, what you know, is on, it? What is it that where I, I would, um, I can justify giving $700 billion to banks, Right. Who who broke the economy in who, the first place. Who broke everything <laughs> in the first place. Who tried to get as rich as possible off of making people as indebted as possible. Mm-hmm. But then right. I but then I look at giving someone who had a boot on their neck mm-hmm. from the government and and taking that money and giving it to them and I lose my biscuit and I tear my shirt and I can't stand it. Right? There's right. something other than the power that we find in the kingdom of God at work there. Mm. Right. And we have to name and, and, it. It's, it's the flip side of retribution or retributive justice. It's meritocratic justice. The idea that people should work for everything that, they're, <laughs> that they earn or, or receive or things like that. So yeah. the, the flips, you know, the, the heavy fo- focus on retributive justice is also becomes uh, all about meritocracy and this illusion of meritocracy where mm-hmm. even psychologically people who have things have to... Bo- somehow believe that they earned it, even though for the vast majority of people who are wealthy in the United States, it, they inherited it. It yes. was about, it comes from land or some other kinds of uh, inheritance. This and, hap- yeah, this happened to my son. 
last Friday. I bought him popcorn at the at a, we went to a, an NBA basketball game because a friend of mine had tickets and he mm-hmm. said, "Hey, you want to come?" I bought him this ten dollar bag of popcorn, which is ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> but uh, and then I and then I asked him for a bite and automatically like that was his bag of popcorn yeah, yeah. like you know he had no conception that it was given to him <laughs> right it's by a gift a, that by I can a benevolent share. <laughs> you know father <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, yeah well takes hold of us Marco. this is so insightful so helpful can you give our listeners um how can they connect to your writings and to to you um virtually well uh you could look up newhumanityinstitute.org and uh, there is a link there to go to the blog. Uh, the blog that we've been discussing has been called is called A Long Repentance. I'd love it if people check it out, give it a read. Uh, as you're doing in your church community, you know, start conversations in, in some kind of uh, formal or if not informal way. There's a study guide that accompanies it. Which is really and, good. Yeah. Really good. I, I just wanted to say that the articles are about, what, 800 words each. They're not long. They're very short. They're yeah. very short, bite-sized. And you tackle really complex things in a really accessible way. And just in our church, we've got about, what, 10 to 15 people that gather on a Tuesday night, 8 o'clock, on a virtual Zoom call like this, Mako. And um, some fascinating conversations. Yeah. It's been really interesting. Stirs up a lot for us. So thank mm-hmm. you so much, and thanks Sangwan so much for us for this resource. Thank Tremendous. you for your for your ministry and for the work you're doing there. And we'll have you back on to talk about uh, atonement. Yeah, that would be fascinating. Will you come back on and talk about that with us? I I would love to, Matt and Ben. Uh, <laughs> thanks for the invitation, and and thanks to you guys and to every single person. In that discussion group, I am I'm really encouraged that uh, people have found it helpful and useful. Yeah, it's awesome. All right, blessings on you, Mako. Peace. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you enjoy learning from this podcast, please be sure to show your support by rating, reviewing, and subscribing on iTunes. Be sure to share with your friends on social media too. And we would love to hear from you. So please email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. You can join our online community for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.